0: Hi, this is Randy Robin, and I'm here with Dr. Trevin Hatch, and this is Come Follow Me Live. And um, today we're going to be discussing the topics of Saul, David and Solomon, especially David's legacy. And um, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Hatch and his background so that you'll understand that you've got somebody that's really qualified to um, to speak to these topics. And I hope you'll pay attention and take notes. Also remember that at the end, um, on your right-hand side, um, there's a place for you to write down questions. We'll hold questions until the end. Um, So if you'll put down any questions you have, um, we'll fill those uh, at the very end of the the presentation. Um, So as far as the bio goes, uh, Dr. Trevin Hatch is the anthropology, Bible, and ancient Near East, Middle East, and religious studies specialist at the Harold B. Lee Library at Brigham Young University. He's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture. He earned a Bachelor of Arts in History and Ancient Near Eastern Studies at BYU, Master of Arts in Jewish Studies, Bible and Early Judaism Emphasis at Baltimore Hebrew University and Towson University, and a Master of Library and Information Science at the uh, University of Kentucky, a PhD in Interdisciplinary Social Sciences at LSU, Go Tigers, I think, with an emphasis in religion and Judaism, and is currently finishing a PhD in Jewish studies with an emphasis in Bible and early Judaism in the Spiritist, uh Institute of Jewish Studies in Chicago. And I think that was almost one sentence where I said it like that. But that's, that's very impressive. So good on you. Um, and I will turn the rest of the time over short of the question
1: and answers to Dr. Hatch. Okay, thank you. Let me just pull this slide up here. Up here, this is. A, I always found that people follow a little bit better when they see. And you know, I'm I'm throwing out a lot of references and you know names, and this will help you follow. So uh, I appreciate uh, you guys tuning in. This is a really great uh, opportunity to talk about the Hebrew Scriptures and the legacy of David, which continue today. Uh, there are a lot of Jewish and Christian groups that are awaiting the Davidic king. And as part of my research uh, right now, my current research on so looking at different Jewish and Christian groups that are highly messianic and they're uh, they're active today and I'm looking at what that looks like. So this is really fascinating to me. Uh, it bridges the gap of the ancient and the modern. So let's just dive in. I've got um, uh, a lot to say. Let me just also preface this by saying that my, uh, my style is one that I have, I, you know, I've a lot of my colleagues, some of them will go through the text. You know, I've seen some different podcasts on this subject. Some people will go through the text and give commentary on some of the major stories. Other people will take one main thing and really go into depth. And there's different approaches. So my approach is I, what I tend to do in my class at BYU, my classes, and then even when I take tour groups to Israel, I always try to focus on the forest from the trees uh, not necessarily dumbing it down. Some people hear that and they think, oh, no, no, we want the trees, we want the details. But this is a scholarly approach. I'll, I'll give you some insight that'll serve as a foundation for your continued study of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, you know, Old Testament, and then even the New Testament next year. So I, I really think that a bird's eye view sometimes really helps pull things together and we'll do some of that. And then occasionally I'll funnel into some specifics. So let's dive in. And I'll talk fast and I'll, and I'll give you a lot of really fun information I think you'll really enjoy. So this first screen here, I've got Judges. I could have started with Genesis and talked about, you know, the even though we're in Samuel and Kings, I wanted to start with Genesis, but we have time constraints. So I'll start with Judges and give you an example of how the authors of the Hebrew scriptures, whoever they are, especially the later ones when they're putting the scrolls, they're Organizing the scrolls in relation to each other to have the to have this, to have this story. Here's one example of these scribes who are, they're, they're, they know David. They're thinking of David, and they're also thinking back uh, to Abraham. So here's an example. You got the, the entire book of Judges is an account of Israel interacting with their neighbors, mainly the Canaanites and the Philistines. Note that these two groups of people are, are, play a prominent role in Samuel. And David contends with these people all the time. He defeats them. And so they show up in Judges. Now, notice here in the very second chapter of Judges, God says, I will never break my covenant with you for for your part. Do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. So right there in the beginning of Judges, the authors are reminding us of the covenant he made with Abraham, looking all the way back. And then throughout the book, it talks about the dysfunction of Israel in the days before the king, when there was all kinds of chaos. And as you can see here on the screen, there are four different times there, and this is later in the book, four different occasions when they say that in those days there was no king in Israel, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. So, and I put here the question, why the emphasis on king? So right here is an example of a pre-David text, not in terms of history, but in terms of just how the narrative goes, where the authors are saying, okay, we're looking back to Abraham and we're looking forward to David. So here, just as a reminder, here is the book of Genesis. Here is the covenant. Uh, the purpose is, if you guys remember, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Um, Abraham is shown a great land. His posterity will become a great nation and God's will curse uh, the nation's enemies. Essentially, this covenant will attempt to bless the entire earth through Abraham's family, and they will lead, they will rule from Jerusalem. Okay, so that's clear back in Genesis. Okay, so we get to Samuel, we finally get to this book that is, all these other books have prepared us for a king, and we have the first half of the Samuel scroll talks about how David becomes king, as you guys remember from the story, and then the second half of the Samuel scroll, what, what is second Samuel today, is about David's reign. Here is what we find in 2 Samuel 7. It says God covenants with David uh, and a bunch of things. So number one, his offspring will build him a home, I mean a house, a temple. David's offspring will be God's son and an everlasting Davidic throne and kingdom will be established. And this is how God is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant through the family of Abraham and then specifically through David's line. The promised messianic kingdom will be the vehicle which will bless all nations of the earth. So the rest of the Hebrew Bible, all of the prophets, if you the rest of this year, when we're studying the prophets, keep an eye on that. So you got Isaiah and Jeremiah and on and on all of them. Ezekiel, they're constantly talking, sometimes in roundabout ways, other times directly about the king, about the future king and what has to happen, how the Israelites have to live in order for this messianic king to come. And then notice here at the bottom right here of the screen, I put in 2 Samuel 22, right at the end of the book, David sings praise to God and hope for a future king. If you remember at the beginning of Samuel, Hannah sings her song like she prays that God will establish a king. And at the very end of the Samuel scroll, it returns to that theme where David sings praise to God and says we need bring the future king. OK, so that's Samuel. Then we get into Kings. And I'm going to. I'm going to go back. We're going to talk about some other things, but I'm just kind of bouncing across the surface now. And in Kings, this scroll begins and ends with Jerusalem and the temple. So the very first king that comes after David is Solomon. and He builds the temple in Jerusalem. And then at the very end, you know, the destruction, the very end of the book or the scroll of Kings. There is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the book of Kings. As you read through, it's it's the what it's trying to explain is the long line of Davidic kings who did not meet the expectation in second Samuel seven king after king after king. Um, And I think I put in here. Yeah, I did right here. We read 32 times where it says that um, the king, you know, the readers reading along and in the story, hoping that this next king will be that, that Davidic king, that victorious king. And at 32 times it says, and these kings were evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the whole purpose of the book to show the failure of the Judahite kings the davidic kings and then here's the very end of the book where jehoiakim is he, this man would have been the davidic king had they not been taken into exile but the very last final paragraph he is led out of prison in babylon and he eats he's allowed to eat at the royal table this is a cliffhanger in the book suggesting that there is that this could be the king who you know could jehoiakim be that king who's gonna to bring the Davidic kingdom. There's a and then and then the book ends, and then you get the prophets. Okay, so now let's talk about uh, let's go through. I want to show you again a bird's eye view through Saul and David and into Solomon, into Solomon's experience. But will I'll highlight a few things that I think you guys will that will help with the story. The main overview, the main purpose, as I'm showing here, is that the goal of the authors is trying to show the transfer of authority and kingship from the tribe of Benjamin to the tribe of Judah, like from Saul to King David. And it's fascinating to watch how they do this. If you keep this in mind, as you read the entire book of Samuel, um, a lot of things will jump out at you. So let me just mention a few of those. Um, Oh, here's here's just kind of a snapshot of what happens to Saul and David. They both start out with promise and they both fall flat. So uh, let me just maybe here in the next five or 10 minutes uh, review the story with you and and point, point a few things out. So if you remember Saul, Samuel chooses Saul, and it says that he's very tall, and he's very handsome, it makes the point to say that, and he's also like the prophets. It says in some of those early chapters where people see him, they, they see him with the prophets, and he's walking with them, and he's prophesying, and they, a little saying starts to go viral, so to speak. It says, could, could Saul be among the prophets? And that point is, OK, here's our first king. This is coming out of the gates and there's a lot of promise. But what happens is he soon there's some clouds in the horizon where he looks like he might be. A, there might be some concerns. And as you can see here, he can't find his donkeys. That's kind of a, I wanted to, to remember that. So put it here in the notes. What is this about? OK, early on, right after he becomes king, he's it says that he's running around the territory, finding his family's donkeys. And he looks kind of foolish. The re, uh, an untrained reader might not pick up on what's happening here, and they might say, "Okay, that's kind of a weird story. He's running around, wasting time, trying to find donkeys that he's lost." But if you remember the David and Solomon stories, where there's a couple instances where, like for example, David leaves Jerusalem, and he's he goes up to the Mount of Olives, and he specifically knows exactly where to find his donkeys. He gets them and he rides off. And this is where Absalom trying to take over take over Jerusalem and Absalom himself jumps on his mule and he chases David. And there's another time where David finds his donkey. And then we all remember Solomon. When Solomon's time has come to be the king, he goes to the Mount of Olives. He finds his donkeys. He has his coronation. He rides his his donkey down the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley to the Gihon Spring in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem's water source where he's crowned king. That's his coronation. And in contrast, Saul is can't find his donkeys. He's running on wasting time. So he looks incompetent. And then there's a couple of stories where he disobeys God. He doesn't take care of the Amalekites like he should have. And Samuel comes to Saul and he says, because you have rejected and not obeyed God, God of Israel, he has rejected you as king. So you're done. Right about that time is in, I think we're around chapters 15 and 16. And again, we're looking at this transfer of authority. So in I think in chapter 16, what you'll see is that God's spirit leaves Saul, specifically mentions it, leaves Saul, and he becomes agitated. He's got evil spirits, it says. And in that same chapter, when Samuel is in Bethlehem, choosing David as king, it says the the spirit of God entered David. So it's moving from Benjamin. This is a story about how the tribe of Benjamin fell and lost their king and The tribe of Judah picked that up with David, and then what happens in the very next chapter is, as you see this picture where I illustrated David fighting Goliath. This is a fascinating, fascinating story. Traditionally, we have taken, we've kind of made this, especially for the kids, we've made it as we've taken that story, put it on an island, and we've kind of uh, made it appeal to basic, um, basic devotional points. Um, Usually, the usually it goes something like this you know, Goliath is nine feet tall. David is a young boy. He only could have defeated Goliath uh, with the power of God. And, and then sometimes like in our um, in our lessons, we'll say, you know, what, what are our go- Goliaths today? You know, and then we go around the room and we talk about our Goliaths. It's not necessarily a bad lesson. It's not, um, but it's, but it misses, sometimes misses the point of what the authors are trying to do. And here's, here's what we see. So David goes on this trek. He This is a 15-mile trek from the down the Husha Ridge from Bethlehem down to Jerusalem. It's an eight-hour journey where he's sent with provisions. We know the story. He shows up. And here's this uh, Philistine um, mocking the Israelites. And this is one place where Saul is shown to look incompetent. Remember, he looked strong and tall and handsome, and he was winning wars, and now he's looking completely incompetent. He's sitting in his tent. He's fearful. All of his uh, soldiers are fearful. And here's David says, who is this guy? I could beat this guy, especially with the God of Israel behind behind me. And then he, he finds his way. He starts to annoy his brothers. And he's annoying people. And he finally gets into the presence of Saul. And he says, I want to fight this Goliath guy. And Saul and this is very symbolic where Saul actually gives him his armor. Like here's the king of Israel who should have been fighting Goliath. And I'll talk about that in a minute, how we know that. But he gives David his armor to, for David to fight. So the story is fascinating because it's showing, again, showing how this transfer power happens. Saul should have been the one to fight David. And it's, we read it in the text where he's a head taller than any man. So he's the king. He's the, the leader of the military. And it says he's very tall. These are all important because Goliath is also tall. The, both of them are about six and a half feet tall. Okay, how do we know that? You know, I thought Goliath was like nine feet tall. In the in the ancient manuscripts, especially the text where we that the King James used and we, we, we get that translation, those texts post-date Jesus by about a thousand years. But if we take the Hebrew translations in the Dead Sea, in the Qumran Bible, the Dead Sea sect, uh, what they wrote, and in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, we take those earlier translations. Goliath is not six cubits in a span or nine feet tall, and rather he's four cubits in a span. So he's about six and a half, he's six six to six nine. And that's probably about a head taller than any man. So it's making this point that Saul should have been the one to do that. But he doesn't. He hands it off to David. Now, David rejects the armor. He says, no, I can't fight with that. But there's another little detail that uh, might be overlooked. He chooses a sling. He has a sling. He's a slinger. He chooses a sling. And what we learn in passing in Judges 20 and 1 Corinthians, not Corinthians, 1 Chronicles 12, and it just says in passing, that the Benjamites were slingers, like that was their choice weapon of war, uh, the Benjamites. So he chooses the very weapon that Saul would have been theoretically good at, good at using. So he goes out there and then we all know the story, he defeats uh, Goliath. So from right at that point, Saul likes David. He brings him into his house and makes, puts him over the military. But not only that, he has him play his music to soothe his evil spirits, to soothe like, whatever was going on. His mental health, it's anxiety, whatever he has. It's ironic that here's David, who's gonna succeed him, he's gonna take over, and he's the one by his music that is soothing Saul. And then what happens is David starts to defeat uh, the enemies. And another meme, for example, like it goes viral, another like so to speak, is where Saul starts to hear people singing or chanting the phrase, uh, or you know, the sentence, Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his tens of thousands. And at that point, he gets furious and he starts to find ways to kill David. And, and then we know like a lot of the chapters, they're back and forth. He's trying to catch David. Saul finally dies. And then David takes over the throne. And again, he starts out with a lot of promise. It actually says that he has, he's very—he's handsome. His eyes are beautiful. He's loyal to God. He wins a bunch of battles. And the first thing he does is conquer Jerusalem. But just like Saul, David falls flat. His kingdom falls flat. He has the Bathsheba. Or Bathsheba, as we say in English, he sleeps with her, kills Uriah. And then from that point on in 2 Samuel, there's dysfunction everywhere. One of his sons rapes Tamar, and then another one of his sons tries to kill the rapist, Amnon. Then Absalom spends a decade trying to plan a conspiracy against David. He moves to the Golan for a few years with his wife's family. And then when he comes back to Jerusalem, David. Puts him under house arrest for a few years, and then when that's over, Absalom spends like four years at the city gate. He, he's a, he's a politician. He spends many years at the city gate. When people come by, he says, "Hey, David's not gonna David's not gonna take care of you. Whenever you have a problem, come to me. I I'll help you." And he starts this groundswell uh, behind him, and then he, you know, then he you know, he has a full-on conspiracy. He's got some of David's men in his corner. David flees Jerusalem and. Absalom's chasing him all over the territory. So then, and then that's pretty much the end of Samuel. Then we get into Kings. And again, David starts to look very incompetent towards the end. He's, he's, he's not out fighting with, with the soldiers. He can't even get warm. He's, he's uh, like, even the warmth of a woman, uh, the Shunammite comes in, he can't get warm. And it's really showing him that he's, he's, his, uh, you know, he's on a downward swing, you know, in his, uh, in his power. So then we get to Solomon, and here's just an overview. Chapters 1 through 8, he succeeds David and then builds the temple. Again, right out of the gates, starting strong, he builds the temple. And then as an aside, I'll return to this in a minute, but as an aside, the temple is, rep- is representative of the Garden of Eden. And there's angels, there's fruit trees, and that's a, a point that I'll come back to that's very important uh, for, for Jerusalem. And then here's a little list I'll give you in chapters nine through eleven, where where we get Solomon's downfall. So you have Saul, David, and Solomon repeating the same cycle of failed king, failed king, failed king. In some in some ways, so as you can see this list, he marries hundreds of non-Israelite women, he adopts their gods and introduces their worship, he kills his brother Adonijah, institutes slave labor, amasses great wealth. All of this is in Deuteronomy 17, where it specifically lays out. Um, the, the what the king, the expectations for the king. And in there, it talks about how you should not amass great wealth, especially not on the backs of your people or poor. Do not take uh, foreign women. And he does all of that. You can read in those, those verses. Overspans, taxes, and he looks more like a pharaoh than he does David. The result of these three failed kings and Solomon is that the nation splits. And what happens is you get, in today's politics, if you get you know, three-fourths of the country saying things aren't going well, and then you're probably going to lose the next election. Here in the ancient world, there's a war and the nation, you know, or, you know, there's conflict and then the nation splits. So he loses over 80% of the nation. So you get the, na- the split of Israel and Judah. Okay, so, so what time we got? Okay. I want to then come to this. This is something that I think this will be new to you most likely. But it helps. It helps me like like when I teach my students this, it helps us to put different books in the entire conversation of what these authors are thinking about as they're writing or at least redacting these texts in their final form. So Genesis, I chose Genesis because that is the foundational text for the Hebrew scriptures. Absolutely foundational. Everything is there. It goes from creation to to the father, Abraham, the covenant. the the fathers leading into Moses. So Gary Rensberg, he's a a Jewish scholar at Rutgers. I'm friends with him. In fact, I just emailed him uh, last week about an issue we published together. Uh, He loves the Bible and he's uh, very conservative in his Bible scholarship. Here's what he writes about the setting of Genesis. He's arguing, he's making the case that the the writers who are putting this book in its final form, they're pulling in the traditions and they're they're putting in the different stories or at least writing it and and, uh, redacting this text. This is after the Davidic and Solomonic monarchy. This is after that time where all of those politics and all of that, all those geopolitics and all of that uh, is in their mind and they're responding. They're most likely responding to the northern tribes who left. They're making the argument that you guys left, you shouldn't have left, Jerusalem is the place that this should be, that the, our worship should be done, not up until Dan, where you build a temple. not up in those areas, not at Shechem. It's Jerusalem. And not only that, David and Solomon were legitimate kings. And so here's what he writes. Here's a big paragraph. You guys can follow along, but here's how he describes it. He says, scribes wrote a national epic incorporating all of the earlier traditions back to Abraham and embedded it embedded into that narrative anticipations of the present. That is to say, there is a social, religious, and indeed political message in the book of Genesis, less so in the other four books of the Torah, though even there occasionally points shine through. Um, And then he says, or in other words, these scribes tell the story about the past, but reflect upon the present. This was a major accomplishment of the anonymous authors in Jerusalem who created the book of Genesis. I would say redacted. I don't know if they created out of whole cloth. Uh, This technique is well-known. Take an example from film. The movie MASH, written in 1969, tells the story of American troops during the Korean War, but as all who see that film know, in essence, it is about another land war in Asia, the one still raging in 1969, the one in Vietnam. The anti-war pro-peace stance of the lead character, Benjamin Franklin Hawkeye Pierce, reflects the present, which is the late 1960s. But is anachronistic for the early 1950s. So um, he's basically saying that, you know, that movie that is set during the Vietnam War was really about the Korean War. But they're speaking about current issues, even though they're supposedly talking about a prior uh, time. And this is what the Book of Genesis is. So let's give you some examples. That um, and David. This is David's legacy. This is David and Solomon, and how that golden age is weighing upon these authors and how they're trying to put them into the most important of texts, which is Genesis. So not any one of these points is necessarily a strong point, but if you see them together, you can start to think, man, this this might be a good argument from Gary Rensburg. So God, and one of them, God promised Abraham and Sarah that kings will stem from them, will come from them. Then we read in Genesis 15, the boundaries of the land of Canaan promised to Abraham in Genesis, match the the very boundaries in the heyday of israel's davidic solomonic monarchy you also have judah he's emphasized in the book of genesis he plays a prominent role he receives a blessing that his tribe will produce kings and the tribe of uh, judah was the dominant tribe in the southern kingdom okay then we have genesis in in genesis we have an emphasis placed on jerusalem and this is fascinating because Here, for example, in Genesis two, mentions the Gihon as one of the rivers of Eden, Gihon River. But notice that the Gihon Spring was Jerusalem's water source after David conquered the city. They called this the Gihon Spring. Um, And if you remember, there's prophecies that water will flow from Jerusalem, from the temple, and will flow down to the Dead Sea, and it will return Jerusalem to its Edenic paradise. It'll be like Eden. So if you remember, when Solomon built the temple, it took on, Garden of Eden um, symbolism, you know, and, and imagery. So we read this in Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Joel. Also, you have Abraham traveling to Jerusalem. He paid tithes to Melchizedek, and then he sacrifices a ram on Mount Moriah, or the Mount of Yahweh. This is where the temp- temple would later sit. So what I do is I, Gary puts these three together. He says these three elements, the priesthood, Sacrifice to Yahweh in the Gihon Spring, legitimized Jerusalem as the current administrative and sacrificial capital of the Davidic-Solomonic kingdoms. And so I just wanted to put this last sentence here to remind us that this might have been a response to the northern tribes who have broken away. They said, don't you remember Abraham? He came here. You know, this is where Eden was, or, you know, the, the center of the earth, according to the authors. Okay, also in Genesis, you have brother issues. You have the, where the younger brother is favored. And here's the list. You got Cain over Abel, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Judah over his older brothers from Leah. You have Joseph o- over his older brothers, Ephraim over Manasseh, and then Moses over Aaron. Although that, that last one is just right after Genesis uh, is continuing that um, yeah, in that vein. So again, this might provide legitimacy to David and Solomon as kings because these uh, David was the youngest son, yet... He became king, young, youngest son of Jesse. And then Adonijah was David's oldest son after Absalom died. He should have been king, but yet it was Solomon who becomes king. So as the, as the writers are retelling their traditions about Jacob and, and Joseph and Ephraim, uh, people might be thinking about the way they write it, the way they talk about it, or even just at the time and place when people are thinking about how we can convince the northern tribes that David and Solomon were legitimate kings, these stories would have spoken to them. You also have a lot of stories of fraternal strife and even fratricide, brothers trying to kill brothers. So you have Isaac and Ishmael are fighting, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. And then the one one of the brothers who killed, the other one is Cain kills Abel. And there's another point here that's crucial. So uh, David's son, Absalom, kills his brother Amnon and Solomon kills his brother Adonijah. Notice that there's some, some, image, some wording here that's exactly the same. Cain kills Abel, quote, in the field, unquote, that's in Genesis 4. Absalom killed Amnon, quote, in the field. So Gary Rensburg thinks this is not a coincidence. These are the, the writers have these stories of David in, and his sons in mind as they're retelling and constructing the, their national history. Okay, here's another one that's important. Judah and Tamar. This is a very strange story. It's it seems to be random. It's stuck right in the middle of the Joseph section in Genesis 38. So what this is probably doing is setting up Judah as a David. These two mirror each other. So both are shepherds who separate from their brothers and both of them move to a city called Adulam. Judah's wife is the name of her, his wife is Bathsheba, means the daughter of Sheva or daughter of Shua. David's wife is Bathsheba, daughter of Sheba. Notice, though, in Chronicles, where the author senses he knows he or she, whoever's writing it, knows that this is happening, and knows that Judah and and David are being written with in relation to each other, and so he changes David's wife to Bathsheba. They're both called Bathsheba. Not only that, they both have daughters named Tamar. Judah and David. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law, and, and then. David has a daughter, tomorrow, both of whom are at the center of sexual scandal. David is also the Judahite king. And as I tell you, as I say here, the story in Genesis 38 might have been constructed or retold with David in mind. All that scandal, all all those problems. Okay, and then we've got a few other examples. I won't spend too much more time, but also you have patriarchs passing some of their wives off as sisters. They're saying, she's my sister. You, and this happens to Abraham and Isaac, both of those. But you also have David and Abigail were siblings, uh, you know, step-sibling, and so was Amnon and Tamar. So again, the readers, this is probably an apologetic to defend David and Solomon and their kingdoms, and, and then th- all that chaos, all those things that happened. Um, I already mentioned that. And then finally, there's three place names in Genesis are related to David. So you have Judah goes to Adjelam. Rachel is associated with Bethlehem. And Jacob goes to Mahanaim. David was born in Bethlehem, relocates to Adjelam, and seeks uh, refuge in Mahanaim. Okay, so that right there is an, uh, an example. I wanted to flesh all that out for you to show that here is David's legacy is not just in Samuel. And then mentioned a few times. the rest of the history with the david king like david is saturated like all through the text from genesis early on all through the prophets they're thinking back and they're looking at david uh, david as a king and even the even the chronicler the guy the, the people who write chronicles if you notice what they do to the david story they take out all the bad stuff they put in they they as they're going through the david chapters they remove Bathsheba, they remove uriah they remove some of that and it's just all the good stuff and i think what they're trying to show is that if David had been, if he didn't have some of those human flaws, he would have, he would be like the Davidic king. The, when the Davidic king comes, he will reign like the, like David's best parts, David's best times. Um, so the chronicler is also wrestling with David's legacy. The Psalms are replete with David all over the place and then the Gospels. So that's where we come to now. Legacy of David. So it's time I got a few minutes. I'll show you a few examples. If we don't get to all of them, that's fine. But here's a, some, you know, we're talking, you know, 900 years or even five or 600 years after the texts were written in their final form for four or 500 years. And so that's a long period of time where David remains central. So here in here's some examples of, of Jesus, how the authors of gospels write about Jesus, Jesus. So they're both associated with Bethlehem. They're both start their ministry, so to speak, at age 30. They're both called shepherds of their father's flocks in so many ways. Jesus is referred to as God's son, and then David is God's begotten son. in Psalm two, Jesus is called beloved son, and and I note here that one of the, the meanings of the Hebrew root of David, dalit vav dalit, is beloved. So Jesus is actually called not just beloved son, but he's called Davidic son, as another translation, you know, another way to kind of say it, Davidic son and then and i i can't cover all of them but it's all the way throughout the gospels and i've skipped over jesus's genealogy that has david all over the place both um uh, conspicuous and inconspicuous it's it's all over the place but then when you get to the second story of the magi the wise man you have uh solomon solomon david and solomon's legacy solomon as a son of david so here's how this works you've got these wise men who come as gentile royalty or whoever they are coming from another land bringing gifts, and proclaiming and and honoring Israel's king. In Isaiah 60, in the early part of Isaiah 60, it tells us that representatives will come from the kingdom of Sheba, or as we say in English, Sheba, and bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. In 1 Kings 10.10, the queen of Sheba brings spices and gold to King Solomon, a son of David. Psalm 72 anticipates that the kings of Sheva will bring gifts and fall down before Solomon with their gold. Psalm 45, this is written to a victorious king whose robes are all fragrant with myrrh. So I can imagine here's here's Matthew trying to tell the story of who he thinks is the Davidic king. He's trying to go throughout the Roman Empire and make the case that Jesus or Joshua is uh, Israel's king, the Davidic king. And so he's probably pulling in, or at least he's making, he's writing it so that people will say, this is just like, this is Solomon. This is, this is an Isaiah and this is Psalms. This is in Kings. So this is another way that David shows up. Um, let me show you. Okay. Show you another one. Um, when David goes, when he's crowned king, like right after that, he goes, the very first thing he does, is he goes into Jerusalem and he contends with the Jebusite leaders in Jerusalem. It says David and his men enter Jerusalem just after the coronation, and what he does is what what they say is that you you guys are so weak that even if you break in, even our blind and our lame will turn you back. It's kind of a strange story. That even like you know, there's a lot of scholars who are trying to wrestle with exactly what this means. And David responds, when when I break into there, I will turn the blind and the lame loose, uh, like I will turn them away, and they will not be allowed to come back into this house or into this spot, into the temple spot that would later be. I mean, this is the high place. Even the Jebusites up on the top of the hill, this is the sanctuary. And in this whole area, the blind and lame will be turned out. This is probably written with Leviticus in mind or vice versa. Leviticus Leviticus could have been written the law with David in mind or vice versa, whichever text was written uh, before the other. Leviticus says that for no one who has blemish shall draw near... One who is blind or lame shall not come near the curtain or approach the altar, that he may not profane my sanctuaries. And then what we read is in Jeremiah 31, later later prophet, uh, he says at a future time in the Messianic age, the blind and the lame will be welcomed back to Zion, to the Lord our God. In other words, this is the temple. This is fascinating. This helps us understand this strange the way that uh, the count is in the Gospels, where imme- so di- immediately after Jesus's coronation, it's a kind of like a coronation where he gets on a donkey, he rides down the Mount of Olives, just like Solomon. The first thing he does when he comes into Jerusalem is he contends with the priests in Jerusalem. And then what it says here in Matthew 21 is that the blind and the lame came into the temple complex. They weren't already there. It says they came in. Do you remember those prophecies of Jeremiah and, and others? Jesus then heals them and then he and then it says that little children. So we're in the midst of a riot, a mini a mini temple riot and there's blind and the lame and then there's children there. And they exclaim hosanna to the son of david. It seems odd that people would that, that they would there would be children and you know once a riot starts in the temple we know this from josephus once something like this starts to happen it always ends in blood and there's always you know it's a it's a big uh it, many thousands of people die. There's two or three different uh Instances in Josephus where it says that thousands died when they revolted and protested the temple. So it's odd that you have blind and lame and children there. But this is written with those trying to argue, trying to show that Jesus illustrates that he is a son of David. And so the author of Matthew quotes Psalm 8, which is specifically mentioned as a psalm of David in the first verse. And it says, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have founded the bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger." We probably run out of time, but uh, let me just show you one very short one. This will just take one minute, and that is even in his arrest in Gethsemane when he shows up. And these, these are passages that we don't associate with David. We just kind of read them. But if you remember, when the police arrive and they ask, are you Jesus? And he says, I am he. You know, this is kind of echoing back to Moses where God says, I am. Jesus says, I am he. And then it says the soldiers stopped. They stepped back and fell to the ground. In Psalm 27, it states that when David's adversaries and foes attack him, they will stumble and fall before his face. And Psalm 35 explains that the Lord will cause David's enemies to be turned back and confounded when they contend with him. So again, the authors of the Gospels, that the, the legacy of David is very, very strong, especially at the time of Jesus when messianic expectations reached a fever pitch. People were expecting a Davidic king. And so even in the late first century, when the authors of the Gospels when they're writing this, they are trying, they have their Hebrew Bible open, so to speak, and they are really trying to craft it so that it's unmistakable. People think of David when they're reading about Jesus. So I'll stop there, even though I've got some other slides. And, uh, and I think that you guys can ask whatever questions. Okay, is that, is that good? Should I stop sharing?
2: Okay, does that work? Randy, we need you to get your mic on. (laughs) Well, and
0: I was excited to hear. five different places to turn it on and off. (laughs) And I picked the first four first. So that was enjoyable. Thank you. Um, So um, these are just my questions, but I'll ask them anyway. Why is David so revered as a king, especially by the Jews, when he's so clearly flawed with committing adultery and murder and we know, at least as Latter-day Saints, and I would think that the Jews know too, the severity of particularly murder. So how does one separate David as a as a Messiah figure and as a Christ figure with his inappropriate actions and why why is it that it seems like to kind of
1: shield off that the negative portion, if you will? It's a good question. It's Difficult to answer, but what comes to mind is that the in, with the Abrahamic covenant, if you remember, you go way back to Genesis, the authors seem to try to make uh, a point that you have a failure on the part of Adam and Eve, and then there's a downward spiral of humanity. God starts again, you have Noah, then there's the down, and he makes mistakes, and then there's a downward spiral right. of humanity. And then, and then when he t- gives Abraham the covenant, he will, he says, through your family, I'll, I'll bless, the, the, you know, bless the entire world. And then what we get is one flawed person after another, and it's almost like the authors are trying to make a point. These are very flawed people, and even then, God's not going to. He's going to keep His covenant. So then, it goes wow. all the way through, and David still they put, um, you know, Judah even way back, and then David Solomon. These are people who are flawed, and therefore it's why they like they themselves weren't uh, didn't establish God didn't establish a. Aligned with them in the everlasting kingdom, it's still to come. And the reason why that happens is because they're flawed. But we revere them as kings because they're important. And that's my guess. That's kind of my reading is that uh, we're imperfect, and God's going to keep His coming with us.
0: So even like with with Rahab the harlot, and you have that lineage going it's on with right.
1: Christ, you, you
0: have you have um, blemishes in that posterity. But that's kind of all part of the fall, and part of all that's absorbed in the greatness and the atonement of jesus christ that's right yeah that's, that's right what say. yeah
2: uh what brother say? hatch <laughs> uh you have you've hit the bar way high <laughs> today and the amount of preparation and your uh your willingness to be on our our come follow me live today uh just and and uh your presentation, it had to have taken the entire week to put it together so i really appreciate what kind of uh things are you doing dr hatchin that you would like uh, this audience to know what is it that
1: yeah um so you mean like some of my research and what i'm Yeah some of with the heavily? research
2: where to where they could find more uh, about you uh, what you're currently doing are you doing any tours are you doing any uh big presentations that we should just be aware of
1: right now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking and allowing me to you know, to, to, to talk about that. So some of the, my recent projects, uh, I published a book with a national, like a Christian religious studies press on Jesus. And so it's called A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. And I think the reason why they accepted that book, and I I most of the scholars, at least in the previous generation who are Latter-day Saint, would just default to a, a Latter-day Saint press because, you know, we could speak to our people and it's, e- you know, it's easier to get published and, you know, to write about what you want to write about to our people. But I thought, I'll, I'll try this national press. And I appeal. What I said is, uh, you know, we have all kinds of people writing about the Jesus traditions and the historical Jesus. You've got Muslims even with Reza Aslan. You have Jewish and Christian and secular scholars. The Latter-day Saint scholars haven't necessarily put a book out like this that um allows people to see how a latter-day saint deals with jesus studies the jesus traditions the historical jesus so that was a fun book to write i published that a few years ago and that goes into depth about the messianic age and what behind the scenes what's happening and pulling from josephus and all the texts and trying to show how the the jesus traditions within their jewish context you know how would you in the second or third century hearing or reading any of these traditions how they what they would think and so I kind of that was a fun book. And then I, I recently published one last year. Um, it was an edited volume with the Jewish Studies Chair at Creighton University, Leonard Greenspoon. We published a book with Latter-day Saints and uh, Jewish scholars, uh, sort of a dialogue book. And then my current projects on, uh, oh, I've got, I forgot about this. I've got a book on Holy Week with Eric Huntsman. He's the director of the Jerusalem Center right now. we published, uh, we just went to press with Deseret Book and the Religious Studies Center at BYU on a Latter-day Saint guide to celebrating Easter season or Holy Week. And that'll be out in February. And so we really wanted to help Latter-day Saints see how Christians have celebrated traditionally the, the various days of the Holy Week, give some scholarship on each day of the week and what happened to Jesus and give some suggestions for Latter-day Saints on how they might uh, start to develop some traditions for their family. And, uh, you know, so I'm doing some of that. I also lead tours with Sacred Space Tours. I've got three tours posted for 2023, if anyone's interested. Um, I've got a YouTube channel, Strangers in Jerusalem YouTube channel. So I'm doing lots of different things. Well, I uh,
2: I follow you on Facebook mm-hmm. and through Holy Week with you and Eric Huntsman. And I was inspired by many of your posts uh, and how you corralled your family and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the activities that you did. And I know Brother Huntsman is... Uh, is is the same way in two mm-hmm. minds like you putting uh, co-authoring in a book called Holy Week all of these links by the way to your tour on sacred spaces with uh your book strangers uh stranger in Jerusalem not to mention your YouTube channel and your podcast that I download on Amazon or not Amazon I download on Apple and I can download on Stitcher all those fine places. You're not a hard person to find You're all over. How do you have time to, and then, and then you have a fam, a young family, a really young family. Do you want I, to say anything that anything else that I missed out or anything? Cause we're going to list all those links in, in our description here. So no one's going to miss
1: anything. Okay? okay. Yeah, it's, it's fun. I, I find, I don't know how I find time. Uh, really, it's like, I, I try to repurpose different things. Like I even asked you, you know, can I, can I take this recording and drop it in the, uh, You know, and so I really do, you know, I I funneled some of my master's thesis work on the Pharisees, funneled that into my Jesus book. And so, yeah, I'm doing a lot of different things, but I was trained well at LSU. My advisor says, don't do anything unless you can, unless you can get two kill two birds with one stone. So that's just how I kind of do it. I just uh, I think ahead and just write a project that can be spun out Um, a lot. of. In fact, this this presentation here that seemed to take a lot of work, it did, but it was over several years when, when writing. My book and my lectures, uh, this is what I give my BOE students, and it really helps them think. And it really, we have a lot of good discussions like, you know, when a text is authored and, you know, Genesis and what is David doing in the Gospels and how is Matthew using this? It really uh, brings us some good discussion about, uh, you know, how we can see scripture. Like, what is scripture? Is it iron? Is all scripture created equal? Is it ironclad directly from God and through the mouth of a prophet via Yerim and Thummim? Or is there some human elements and fingerprints? We we discuss all that, and this is the kind of stuff I talk about that to uh, bring that discussion out. Will you uh, Will you share that PowerPoint presentation with us, or is that proprietary
0: and yeah. keep it? I'd love to have it. Yeah, yeah, share. Have it. Was yeah I'll share. It with you. Yeah,
2: we'll post that in the links as well. I notice you're starting your second dis- dissertation after eight years of this academic study, uh, and. Uh, when do you think that will, end when, you get a, when you get it all, all the pieces put together, how, okay. how far away are you for that?
1: Let me just spend one minute because, I, you know, pe- people don't like an overachiever, right? So I always have to say there was a method to this. I have two masters and two doctoral degrees, but a lot of it just, you know, the short story is that when um, the recession happened in '09, you know, 2010, that area, uh, I wasn't getting into PhD programs with funding despite having high GPA and GRE. And so I was discouraged. I was in the ancient world. And so what I did is I left to LSU. I got funding there to study in the social sciences. And I wrote my dissertation on American Jews. But during that time, when I wasn't sure I was gonna get funding to LSU, during that summer, I thought, if I don't get funding and I can't go there, I still want to do finish my graduate training in you know biblical studies and Jewish studies. So I found this program in Chicago where their target audience is adult, um, older adult Jews who are already working in the Jewish community at the synagogue or teaching Holocaust studies, at the community college or rabbis. So they do it distance and then we fly into to Chicago a couple of times a year, have our in-class seminars, and then we come home and write our papers. And so I just started doing those at the same time. And it, it, it's they're both related to Jewish studies. So I just kind of see them as one doctoral degree, even though they're technically two and I'm just having fun with it. So. Oh,
2: well, you have been a marvel. And okay. well, thank you so much. We'll say goodbye for now. And we hope we get you back when we start the New Testament, because what you're working on right now is how to read the New Testament and the Old Testament from a Jewish perspective. And I can't wait to get started again on the New Testament and come follow me and for now to our audience. And uh, we want to say goodbye until next time. Thank you so much for joining. Thank us. you. Thank you.